Atlantis, submerged city you enchant us. Oh, Poseidon, please grant us entry to the city of Atlantis. Atlantis is a city at the bottom of the sea. It's soggier now than it used to be. Because it used to be above, now it's down below. It's a waterlogged city of Atlantis. Every room and every house has an oceanic view. If you shoo away a whale or a manatee or two, there is not a better, wetter place for you to go than the waterlogged city of Atlantis. Well, the forecast says the humidity is high. It's not your kind of place if you want to stay dry. But you can always have tea with a sea anemone in the waterlogged city of Atlantis. In the waterlogged city, in the waterlogged city, in the waterlogged city, in the waterlogged city, in the and everything is so pretty Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast One man's musings on the works of Stephen King Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King In the chronological order of publication And this week, or this particular episode I should say uh, If you are listening to it, this is the bonus episode for the Hearts in Atlantis The novella collection uh, this bonus episode will explore the relationship between uh, the, the the collection and its relationship to Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. So, if you are not a Dark Tower fan, or you haven't finished The Dark Tower, and you've kind of dipped your toes into Midworld, then I would say uh, cry off on this particular journey, and then come back when you have finished, because I don't want anyone to be spoiled on the the ending to The Dark Tower, as I'm going to get into some spoilers here and there, so... If you are listening to this, please proceed at your own risk. So, the first of all, I just want to talk about the the can toy. Uh, the can toy is the official term for the the race of creatures that we are introduced to here as the 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 low men in the the, the story, the low men in, in yellow coats. Now, I believe. Uh, that we have seen the Cantoy before. If you have listened to my review of Christine, I theorize the possibility that Roland LeBay, whose brother referred to him as a changeling, um, could have been a Cantoy that had been placed in the human world. Now, look, I, I know that it doesn't entirely add up because with what we know about the Cantoy, um, they, they aren't really human. They want to be human, and they wear human masks, but they have animal faces underneath. Um, so I, I, I do understand that it isn't an entirely straight and, and clean lineup, but LeBay does have some power about him, and his relationship with his sentient car is incredibly similar to the relationship between the low men and their monster cars. And then you also have the the, the low man who drops off the, the Buick in From a Buick 8. So between what we see in Christine, what we see in From a Buick 8, what we see here with the low men and their cars, there there is this relationship here from story to story to story. So regardless, in this short story, the mythology of the Dark Tower opens up so much more than it already has. In the pages of Insomnia, we learned of the villainous the Crimson King, and with this short story, we meet his henchmen, the pawns on his side of the chessboard, what Ted calls the low men in yellow coats, officially known as the Cantoy. Now, both titles for the characters are awesome. I mean, they're monster thugs. They're the shadowy figures you don't want to see on a city street at night. It's like King took the idea of the Elroy thing from the Talisman and decided to fold that character into the larger mythology of his Dark Tower universe. 
They're the ground level of a cosmic war. Like I said, pawns set against their opposite number, the breakers, a group of psychics I'll get to later. But the fact that the Kantoi, the low men, are monsters wearing human disguises is such a cool and creepily Halloween-esque touch. Also, it makes the Crimson King that much cooler. He's the ultimate villain because he has bona fide monsters in his employ. Now, granted, we, we meet the low men through the perspective of Bobby and Ted, so they appear more monstrous than they actually are. By the time we meet them in the light of day in the town of Divartoy in the pages of the Dark Tower, really it comes down to the fact that they're nothing more than just bored blue-collar workers. And the Crimson King isn't some all-powerful comic book villain, but an insane, impotent old man locked in the confines of his own ambition. But at this point, for now, at the, uh, during King's chronology, the idea of monsters walking the streets with human faces employed by the ultimate evil, it made me giddy. And the fact that their title of Cantoy refers to the language of the dead, a phrase that appeared in Desperation, a term meaning little god as opposed to Cantac, big god, made me incredibly happy. I loved Desperation, so the connection was a good one for this constant reader. Now, when I first got to the ending of The Dark Tower, I was disappointed at the reveal of the Divartoy or Aljil Siento or Blue Haven um, collar workers um, and the, the Crimson King's impotency. But my disappointment has less to do with King's storytelling and more to do with my misreading of the text. Because, after all, if King's ultimate statement on evil is that it is uh, pathetic and stupid, then that's evident with the Cantoy themselves. I mean, just think about what he writes when it comes to the, the, the low men on page 48 of the hardcover uh, publication. Low men, Ted said. I use low in the Dickensian sense, meaning fellows who look rather stupid and rather dangerous as well. The sort of men who'd shoot craps in an alley, let's say, and pass around a bottle of liquor and a paper bag during the game. The sort who lean against telephone poles and whistle at women walking by on the other side of the street while they mop the backs of their necks with handkerchiefs that are never quite clean. Men who think hats with feathers in the brim are sophisticated. Men who look like they know all the right answers to all of life's stupid questions. I'm not being terribly clear, am I? Is this is any of this getting through to you? Any of it ringing a bell? Yeah, in a way it was. In a way it was like hearing the time hearing time described as the old bald cheater, a sense that the word or phrase was exactly right even though you couldn't say just why. It reminded him of how Mr. Bitterman always looked unshaven even when you could still smell sweet aftershave drying on his cheeks, the way you somehow knew Mr. Bitterman would pick his nose when he was alone in his car or check the coin return of any payphone he walked past without even thinking about it. So the the low men, great concept uh, for the the characters. I, I just I really enjoyed their introduction here, and I enjoyed revisiting them uh, in the future stories and getting to know them in greater detail in the in the Dark Tower was was definitely a real treat for me upon my Dark Tower reread because um, at the time that I'm recording this, it is the end of September. I finished rereading the Dark Tower again just a couple weeks ago, and I was just very very excited about getting to getting to the the, the part uh where the, the 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 gunslingers head out to the the thunderclap uh to uh the divar toy in order to to take down the 
the low men, the Cantoy, and just getting to know them. And King spends a lot of time getting to know them. And you, you get to, to meet Finley Otego, and you just realize that he's just... He wants to be liked, and he has ambitions, and he has personal desires, and yeah, he's in the employ of someone who's trying to literally destroy everything that's ever existed, but at the end of the day, he, you know, I mean, he might have an animal face, but he's still a guy. So it's just, I, I love, I love that duality there. All right, so now I want to talk about Ted, Ted Brodigan. So Ted's presence brings the most information about the Dark Tower since we learned about the Crimson King in the pages of Insomnia. There, we learn the identity of the cosmic villain of King's universe, and here we learn the method to achieving his ultimate goal, and that is the use of the Breakers. Until now, we haven't, you know, we hadn't known what the Breakers were, and from this point in the Stephen King universe, we will see them in the pages of Everything's Eventual and Black House before seeing them and Ted Brodigan specifically in the conclusion of The Dark Tower. Ever since his first publication, Carrie, King has provided us with superpowered people. Carrie was a tele telekinetic. Danny Torrance and Mother Abigail had The Shining. Charlie McGee was a fire starter. Johnny Smith could see the future. Alan Pangborn could project his shadow puppets. The Losers had a shared telepathy. The characters of Dreamcatcher had a range of psychic powers. Dinah from the Langoliers was a psychic. Jack Sawyer could travel between worlds. John Coffey could heal. David Carter could communicate with God. And with the low men in yellow coats, King gives a a name to his superpowered characters, the Breakers. Wisely, King makes Ted the face and de facto leader of these characters, a great move because he's an incredibly likable character. He's immediately beloved by the reader. My memories of his inclusion in the final pages of the Dark Tower before my reread were, were kind of fuzzy. I remember rolling in the gang freeing the Breakers and a reunion with Shimi and... You know, Ted taking the rest of the Breakers to freedom, a story for another day. And reuniting here with Ted was a great experience. And reuniting with Ted in Endworld with the other Breakers, that was a great experience for me um, during my reread. But back to the Breakers themselves, how cool is this name? You know, it gives them such richness. And to be perfectly honest, it's pretty badass. That's a cool-sounding gang. And the fact that they're power enough to break the cosmic beams that hold the multiverse together only shows how powerful the Crimson King is, that he's able to enslave them. And then here, at the point of, of uh, the publication of Low Men and Yellow Coats, the idea we have of the, the, the Breakers and their enslavement, I think that we all conjure chains and dungeons and... And that sort of thing, which is not what enslavement looks like when we when we eventually get there. It's enslavement through comfort. Um, it's the trappings of a very recognizable and suburban world of just 21st century America uh, existing at the end of the universe. It, it's it's a very very cool idea. It's a great image. It's a great concept, and it's a great way to comment on what enslavement really is. Uh, for us. Um, and then now I want to talk about Randall Flagg. Mr. RF is referred to in the pages of this collection, uh, and rather than being in front and center, King wisely shows the effects of the man in black. First, he strips Flagg of his wizardry and mythology that we've seen built up in the Gunslinger, the Wizard in Glass, and Eyes of the Dragon. Instead, this iteration of Flag that's referred to here is more along the lines when we first saw him walking the highways for the first time in the pages of The Stand. 
He was described as having pamphlets for every occasion, from the KKK rallies to meeting with the Black Panthers. You know, he was an equal opportunistic hate monger. So wherever he could spread chaos, he would. In the pages of The Stand, we saw him on a grand stage, but here we see his actions set against the backdrop of a recognizable America whose history is chronicled with the baby booner generation, possibly the most written about generation to exist. So it makes perfect sense for Flag to show up in the pages of this text, even though he never actually shows up. It's just the presence of Flag. The reference is all we need. Once the reference is there, it's clear that he's in every page. He lurks in between every word and every space on the page. From a literal standpoint, Randall Flagg serves the Crimson King, and the Crimson King is the antagonist in the introductory story, Low Men in Yellow Coats. So it makes sense for Randall Flagg to be lurking behind the scenes of these stories. But more importantly, because these stories represent the fall of the ideology of a particular generation, who better to be the one to bring about the corruption of innocence than Randall Flagg himself? He doesn't need to be in the forefront. Just knowing that he's working in the dark corners of the world while a generation strives to make it better is all that we need. And it's fitting, sadly, that he wins in the end. <clears throat> His machinations felt through Carol Garber's ultimate fate rather than seen bring about the destruction of the baby boomers. In the 3.5 episode analysis of The Stand, I discuss Randall Flagg as the adult boogeyman, the outsider to our civilized world. Here, he represents the outsider to the best of ourselves. He's the grinning imp within all of us that lures us to our more base qualities, tempting us all to becoming not the Ted Brodigans of the world, but the low men in yellow coats. And it's King's opinion, at least in this narrative of this particular work, that Flagg won. Uh, the Rose also has a lot of imagery in this novel. The Rose, of course, being um, one of the, the, the major iconic images from the Dark Tower series. And then stories in a book. Uh, so much of Low Men in Yellow Coats speaks to the power of the written word. Ted loves stories, and at one point he even acknowledges his presence in a book. When he and Bobby talk about books, Bobby asks him what he's thinking, and Ted answers... That one hasn't been written yet. So this is sort of pushing our, our thought process and our thinking towards the ultimate reveal that Stephen King is included in the grand narrative of The Dark Tower and his books are um, his way of channeling these great stories that are existing out in the multiverse and giving them to the world and giving them a, a sense of protection for some and death to others and creating a power because those stories will then last and i'll be getting that uh getting to that in much more detail in the pages of wolves of the collins song of Susanna, and the dark tower once i get to those reviews all right guys so this wasn't my longest uh, bonus episode but like i said a lot of the, what i would have to say is going to be coming soon enough soon enough everyone so um that is all that i have for now but the next episode that you will be listening to will be the review of the anthony hopkins starring adaptation of hearts in atlantis specifically the short story low men in yellow coats so everyone thanks for sticking around and if you have not done so already feel free to uh write to stephen kingcast at yahoo.com and share your thoughts and 
leave a review and a subscription on iTunes, and may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. In the waterlogged city, 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 in the waterlogged city. And everything is so pretty. In the waterlogged city of Atlantis.